We begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we're kind of starting this new sermon series called Psalms of the Passion, and, and we're going to, to walk towards Easter, uh, and we're going to kind of do that in a systematic way, but, but I think when we consider maybe starting out that walk, we want to maybe take tally of exactly what's in our backpacks or what luggage we're carrying along with us. Um, and obviously, you know I don't mean that physically, right? Uh, but we talk about um, what kind of baggage do we carry uh, as believers? What kind of, what, what weighs heavy upon our shoulders, upon our relationships, right? And, and just in our daily living. And so that's what we want to look at today. We're going to ask ourselves, what are we already kind of carrying with us if we're starting this walk towards Easter? Some of that baggage is heavier than others. I heard a story, um, um, a true story recently, uh, about a, a World War II aviator. Does anyone know what type of bomber this is? Yeah, B-24. So I knew, I knew if I... Here's the danger when you, when you use like historical illustrations. Some of you just love history, and so pardon me if I get some of the details wrong, but yeah, this is a B-24, uh, otherwise known as a B-24 Liberator, I think. So this was one of the bombers um, that, that was used in World War II uh, um, against, against Germany and, and, and Italy to, to a large degree. Um, they were useful bombers. They maybe weren't considered the most reliable. Uh, there are stories from airmen that say the, the B-24s were, were remarkably prone to accidents and just random fires starting. So you can probably imagine if you're a crew in a B-24, um, you're getting shot at already. Just random fires are not a really great thing to be undergoing, right? Um, so the B-24 had some quirks, a little bit of personality to that's a nice way of saying it, a little bit of personality to it. Uh, but at times, things just kind of went wrong with these B-24 liberators. Now, not that they weren't useful tools in how they were used uh, in that war, and they were remarkably effective in that regard, but they weren't always the most reliable. And so there's a story that goes about a crew that had gone on a bombing run in one of their B-24s uh, into, the, into the heart of Germany, and, and everything had gone well. Everything had gone swimmingly, which wasn't always the case with these B-24s. Uh, they had gone in, they had made their run, they had hit their targets to some degree, at least as best they could tell, um, and now they were on their return trip home, which is always a good trip to make, right? So they were headed back, um, specifically back to Great Britain. Um, and, and as they were going, and as they were getting, getting ready to land, uh, someone from the back said, said there's, there's a bomb that is lodged in our bomb bay. So they had dropped all, they thought they had dropped all of their ordnance, but it wasn't until they had to land that they realized that one of those bombs was still lodged in the, in the bomb bay. Now, that posed a little bit of a problem because landing when you have a bomb lodged in your bomb bay was not a good thing, right? And so the pilot said, we've got to get this thing out. Like the only way that we're going to survive is to get this bomb physically off of this plane. And so the crew worked furiously to do that. Um, and they were able to dislodge the bomb. And, and um, from the, the crew's reports, they said immediately after they got it pushed out, after they got it released, they looked down and they saw someone's house. In fact, like they, they had comments about it. They said, we, we could not have hit that house more squarely if we had tried. 
right? And they weren't trying. They were just trying to save themselves. They were just trying to get rid of this bomb. Um, and it went down, and, and, and all they saw was this home of someone completely obliterated. Years and years later, they would interview the pilot of that plane. And um, they were asking about his experiences in World War II and, 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 and um, some of the tragedies and things that came from it and some of the difficulties, some of the, the weight and the baggage that he still carried with him. And you want to know what was the number one thing that weighed on him? It was that one. It was that one. Because what family had been in there, who, what innocent people had, had he killed because of his decision to try to save himself and his crew. Um, um, and he recalled to the, the interviewer, he said, um, by far that is the one that weighs heaviest on my mind and that I have the most guilt about. Right? I think we can empathize in a sense. Uh, maybe we haven't been physically in war. Maybe we haven't been asked to make those life and death, death decisions. But I guarantee each and every one of us have baggage, have choices that we've made, things that we have done that may have obliterated relationships, families, neighborhoods, or even workplaces. Today, we want to talk about those things. We want to talk about the baggage that we arrive with, the things that we are carrying around that are heavy upon our shoulder. And, and there's no better time, I think, to do that than for us as believers than in the season of Lent. So some of you are able to make it out in the snow, because um, remember, we... We schedule snow for Wednesdays, right? Uh, so some of you are able to make it out for our Ash Wednesday service, but uh, in that service we did what we call the imposition of ashes, which actually goes back, they estimate, to about 163 AD. So believers have done this for quite a while. Um, the significance of ashes was a sign of repentance and sorrow over sin. We do that as we walk through this kind of Lenten season, right? Um, um, and so today, that's what we want to talk about. What does it mean for us as believers to repent? What does God want us to do with the baggage that we have? Right? Uh, Protestant reformer Martin Luther said this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Right? And so today, that's what we want to talk about. What is the point of repentance? Where does it start us? And where does it lead us to ultimately in Christ? Okay? So uh, our theme today is going to simply be repentance. Uh, and for those of you that like, today you get fill in the blanks. So um, if you want to know my three part, uh, um, the three parts of my sermon today, it's and, verses, and two. So yeah, that's a joke a little bit. Uh, we're going to fill in the words that are on either side of those, but um, um, we're going to kind of walk through and, and, and talk about, okay, um, how does David, King David and Psalm 51, walk us through this Christian concept of repentance and ultimately further our journey towards, towards Easter, okay? So let's get into it. Uh, I'd love to have you follow along with me in your bulletin if you would like. Uh, our very first fill-in, if you are doing a fill-in-the-blank, is going to be damage. We're going to just talk about um, what damage have we done. And the first thing we're going to read is simply this. Now, you'll notice this isn't even a verse in our text, right? This is actually the headline uh, to Psalm 51. It simply says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, 
when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So, um, quite a headline, right, for a psalm. But it does give us the historical setting of what is taking place in this psalm as we, as we kind of journey with David through it. So, this is the backstory. If you want to read that backstory, maybe some of you know it, but maybe many of you don't. Um, you can go into 2 Samuel, and you're going to find that story of, of David uh, committing adultery with Bathsheba. Um, the reason this is the, the prologue to Psalm 51 is because David had seen intimately the damage that his sin and his choices had, had made. He saw Bathsheba, who was attractive. He was the king of Israel. He decided to invite her to his throne and his home. He committed adultery with her. He then subsequently um, tried to have her husband Uriah killed. He he, um, involved his entire hierarchy. He had people that were lying for him. He had lives that were damaged and destroyed. His own and all those underneath him. And so that's the prologue for our text here today. David understood the damage, and the cascading effects that our choices and our sin can have on us and the people around us. This is maybe a good picture of it when you think about a waterfall, right? And how water drops from one level to the next to the next and gets wider and wider and wider. David understood that intimately because he had seen one of his dear friends, one of his most trusted commanders had already been put to death by his order, right? He had taken somebody else's wife. He he had committed adultery. He had seen the cascading effects and damage that sin had done. And now at the bottom of that damage, the prophet Nathaniel comes to David and calls him out on it. In no uncertain terms says, this is what you've done. These are the consequences for you and the people around you. Now what are you going to do with it? Okay. The response to it is Psalm 51 that we get to read today. Let's continue on. David knew the damage that his actions had done, but he also knew the dirt or dirtiness of sin at its core. Okay. So cascading repercussions, but also the dirtiness of it. Look at verse 3, 4, and 5 in our text. David says this, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now what's a little fascinating about this, remember I started out this story talking about all of the collateral damage that David's sin had caused on families and people around him. And he knew all of that. But do you notice his confession here? Who does he point the finger at squarely? At himself. Right? At himself. Right? So he doesn't say, well, you know, Bathsheba, it's, she, was, she, was, she was showering and she's attractive, 
So not really, this isn't really on me. Or, or Uriah, her husband, says, well, we just had the army back away. He must not have got the order is why he was killed on the battlefield. Right? Now, at this point in David's life, he says, I've seen all the repercussions. And there's no justification. And there's no amount of, of, of um, circumstances that could have or should have led to my choices I am responsible. I am the one that has sinned. I am the one that is laying myself at the foot of a perfect, righteous God. Now, why is that important for us as believers? I think it's because of this. I think it's because our, our natural inclination is always to point out there. Right? Well, he made me do it. She made me do it. The circumstances made me do it. Um, I just lost my temper. It was a small mistake, right? We, we almost always, we almost have an endless capacity uh, to say that sin is out there. And here's the irony of it all. It's very easy for us to see the sin in others. And it's remarkably difficult to see that same sin in ourselves. And so we, all, so we, we see it all out there. It's all around us. And somehow we have this this image of, of, of ourselves standing in kind of this, this, this holy, clean, righteous bubble. And I can't believe how sinful the world is around me and how, how, how um, angry and, and, and terrible it is out there. But I'm standing here on my nice little patch of ground and I, I keep it neat and tidy. Right? David didn't, didn't say that. right? He didn't play these semantic games at all. David is actually saying the opposite. He's saying, you want to find a dirty piece of ground? You want to find a piece of ground that is absolutely soiled and terrible? It's the ground I stand on, and in fact, it is me. And I think there's power in that for us as believers, even as we walk this Lenten journey. David says, me. Not sin out there, but sin in me, in my heart in my motivation, in my actions, in my lack of actions, right? Ultimately, it's on us, isn't it? Okay. Now, what do we do with that? Brings us to our next point. Or let me ask this question. What do we desire to have done with the weight of that reality in us, right? Well, David gives us a little insight into what he wanted, what he prayed for, what he, what he hoped. We're going to find that in verse 1 and 2. He starts it out this way. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And so what's David's desire? And on some level, I think, we, like, what, what's our desire? Well, Lord, wash us clean right? Make us right. Help us, help give us the, the transparency and the bravery to um, fully address and confront the sin that is in us. And when we've done that, Lord, wash us clean. Pick me up from my dirty patch of ground that I have soiled myself, right? Um, um, lift me from my brokenness, from my pain and all of these things. You can hear it in 
David's words, right? He's not even looking for justice here, is he? In fact, remember the previous verses, he says to God, if you were to judge, you would be just. To put that another way, David is recognizing, God, if you, if you were to judge, I would be damned. I would be done. I've got no defense. I'm not going to try to wriggle out from underneath this. And so how does David approach his God? Not from justice, but mercy. He said, Lord, have mercy on me. Have compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash and cleanse me. I think we understand that desire as well, don't we? My guess is for each of you, as you were sitting here, we talk about baggage. I would guess you don't have to dig very deep to find guilt, to find shame, to find instances that you wish you could take back. That's the case. You're no different than anyone else sitting around here or King David. Our desire is for mercy and that we are washed clean. Right? Okay. Reality, though, what do we deserve? And in fact, David understood this to some degree as well. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Right? We pointed out what he desired, but what does David appeal to within our God above? There it is. His unfailing love. Right? A love that does not let us down. A love that does not break promises. We even heard that a little bit in our Gospel Passion reading today, where Jesus ends each of his prayers in agony with, Lord, your will be done. And so David appealed to the very same thing that you have that washes you clean. It's Christ. Unfailing love in human form who gave his life on the cross so that your sins would be washed clean. Not, not our good actions, not our, our moral uprightness, not our vain attempts to scrub ourselves clean, but Christ. God's unfailing love is seen no clearer and no better than in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And that Lord and Savior died on a cross so you would be washed clean. So that when God looks at us to judge, he doesn't see the laundry list of sins we've committed, but instead he sees Christ's righteousness in our place, in your place. You're washed clean because of Christ. Christ carries the baggage. Christ pays for the sin. Um, We we put all of that nastiness and ugliness um, at the foot of the cross and you are assured without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus himself has paid for it. His life, death, and resurrection are proof of that. So David's desire was to be washed clean. Where do you find that? We find that in God's unfailing love. You find that in Christ, right? Okay. And what do we do with death? David goes on a little bit more. Read for you verses 10, 11, and 12. Now notice how the flow of this psalm changes from the beginning to the end, okay? Verse 10, 11, and 12. David says this, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Now, it's interesting that David pulls out some some kind of key things here. See, David understood that on his own, his own actions, his own life, his best efforts led nowhere else other than to death. And so what does David ask of his God above? He asks for life. He asks for renewal. He asks for restoration. He asks for something that is new, that is different, that is restored, and that is fixed. That's what David wanted. That's what we have in Christ. That's what you have in Christ, right? Not only that, but David says, this that I get from you, it will sustain me, right? And I think that's the important part as we look at our last one, dancing. How does repentance lead us from death to dancing is maybe the question. How did David, in the course of one psalm, go from death to dancing, from recognition of sin to praise of his God above? Look at our last verse there. David says, open my lips, O Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. From how we started that psalm to how we ended it, the only reason David can say this, the only reason he would have the, um, um, the bravery to say this before his God above is because of God's unfailing love, because God keeps promises, because God fixes what is broken and God forgives. He's done that in Christ. If you want to go from death to dancing this Lenten season, follow this path of repentance. And it always ends here because of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And then we're able to praise and give God's praise, God praise, and resist sin, right? And, and lean into the things that God says are good and beneficial for us and the people around us and, and to resist temptation and, and, and push that aside. And we do not do it perfectly. And yet, David knows and asks for, to be sustained and that God would walk with him, and God does. I mentioned at the beginning the cascading effects of sin and how we can see how our actions have consequences and our sins have consequences. You want to know what else cascades? Not just sin, but joy does and forgiveness does and praise does. And so when you put those things into your life in an ever-increasing way, do not be surprised that that has cascading effects. What do I mean by that? I mean the people around you. As husbands and wives, when, when, you, when you put yourself into forgiving and being forgiven and loving one another, what cascading effects does it have? Well, it means that marriages and husbands and wives are giving and receiving everything that they need. Within your family units, right? When families put themselves fully into forgiving, being forgiven, a, a, a transparent recognition that we are not perfect and yet we have a God who was and who has forgiven us, what cascading effects does that have? Well, it, it permeates families and children and grandparents and aunts and uncles. When you, when you do that, it starts to cascade out, right, into your neighborhoods, into your communities, into your, your, your relational groups, um, and into your workplaces, 
And so as, as cascading and painful as sin can be, the opposite is even greater. The cascading effects of knowing Christ and his forgiveness and you demonstrating and putting that into practice in your life. Uh, a Presbyterian pastor, Tim Keller, said it this way once, which I, I've always liked. The gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. You could say that's the first part of Psalm 51. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope, right? Christian's path of repentance walks us down this path. Lenten season gives us an opportunity to do that, that we are fully and freely forgiven by our Lord above. And I pray that that removes some baggage and weight from your shoulders. Remember our opening story. Um, The the B-24 commander uh, who just carried this guilt on him all, all the way into old age and they were interviewing him and he said, this is by far the thing that I f- feel the most guilt about, the, the greatest baggage that is heavy upon me was um, that, that that house had, been, had kind of been obliterated. Um, his exact quote was, that guilt and remorse will always be with me. His interview got, got aired on TV uh, and somebody quickly called in about that interview. And they called in and they told the interviewer, they said, "Um, I know exactly what he's talking about. And in some sense, I think the interviewer was like waiting, like, this is not going to be good, right? This is going to be probably like relatives of the family who died in that house. But the opposite was true. It was actually the family who had lived in that house. And they said, you make sure you tell that airman that we didn't die, (laughs) that we heard the plane coming and we, we ran outside and that bomb dropped and it destroyed our house, but we weren't inside. We lived, (laughs) right? The interviewer shared that with that commander and he he said this, he said, it seemed to just wipe clean my slate. He had carried that guilt, the baggage of that around with him for so long and yet it was taken from him. Now, you may not have a story exactly like his. And sometimes the earthly consequences of the choices we make have repercussions. But know this without a shadow of a doubt that your slate has been wiped clean because of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That is what repentance does for us as believers. And understanding, understanding rather, that that, um, God has created something new in us, that you are forgiven, that you are loved. Let that cascade and lead you towards Easter. Amen.